Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. you come across the thing because before this i was the type of person who had only ever seen clips of this movie i'd seen the spider head and then i'd be like oh man i love the thing because i thought that's what the thing was i'd be like yeah yeah that movie's so sick you know just because all my friends had seen it and i just for some reason had never watched it until you were like hey you should do this and i can't believe how good of an experience this was this movie is phenomenal i'm amazed that a movie that should feel dated given the technology that's in it um just doesn't and uh, i have i have kind of like some theories behind that this movie does the same thing that like predator does which i'm gonna go into that in a little bit so how did you find the thing right so uh my first exposure to it it's honestly it's probably like how a lot of people were exposed to the thing um through clips, right? So, you know, the spider head is sort of like the most infamous thing, I think, from the movie. Um, so I saw a clip from it, and then I also saw it... Um, so for people who don't live in Florida, who've never been at Universal Studios Florida, they have a show called The Horror Makeup Show. And the basic concept is that you sit down and you watch... It's kind of like a comedy thing, but they also kind of show you how the visual effects... Um, work in horror movies and whether it be CGI or practical, it kind of gives you a introduction into that world. And so they show a montage of a bunch of different horror movie clips. So I saw it as at a really young age. Um, I was probably too young for it really. Cause it kind of like, I, I was kind of blown away by it and also sort of disturbed, but um really fascinated with it but the thing is one of the movies that showed up several times in the montage so then I saw clips from it on TV and then finally I had bought the DVD and said I'm going to watch this and then in 2007 Halloween Horror Nights another Florida staple um, which is a Halloween event for people who don't know at Universal Studios Florida um, they did a thing sequel house so I said okay I need to watch this movie um, and I did, and it blew me away. And I've been watching it over and over ever since. Yeah, the I, I love that you brought up Halloween Horror Nights. That is such a staple of Floridian life. Oh, yeah. Where it's like every 13-year-old smokes weed for the first time on the way to <laughs> Halloween Horror Nights. It is <laughs> usually like the first time you're like, I made out with a stranger. <laughs> that was... 
something you did at Halloween Horror Nights. Uh, it's a formative experience for just becoming a uh, quintessential Florida piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's so many uh, there's so many wild stories, right? Like there's just people get into a lot of trouble in those lines because it's just. If you don't know about horror nights, it's you have to go through these haunted houses, but there's all these big, big long lines. Um, so there's just long, long like a, a hour, two hours, three hours of of, of waits, um, and it's only gotten worse. So yeah, people get into trouble. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, it's an average of a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, yes. even at night. Yes. It is. Um, <laughs> Humidity so thick you can see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's wild. Like I don't. I see people go dressed up. Like they'll wear like a button down, or you know they'll like they'll like they're acting like they're going to a club. And I'm like I don't know how you do that. Like I have to wear like shorts and sneakers and like max the like the hottest things like baseball tee. I can't do anything else. Like it's just too hot. It's too uncomfortable. I thought you meant dressed up like they used to do for NFL games in like the 1950s. <laughs> like they're going in like a suit. <laughs> I don't think I've ever My seen. Why I new- say she's barking at us? <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that, but I think I would love to see that now. The coolest thing about this movie is that there's no real main character. That was uh, one thing that I had in my head the whole time. Like, I guess that Kurt Russell's character, uh, McReady, is technically the main character. But this is one of those movies where the backdrop actually feels like the main character, which is really, really hard to do. Uh, City of God, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, it's a Brazilian movie from 2002, probably did it the best, in my opinion, because that movie has like a thousand characters, and the only character that will truly stand out to you is literally the city of Rio de Janeiro, but this film, like the hostile tundra, Antarctica, the fact that the base can't stop exploding, all of that felt like the actual main character to me, and also I wanted to point out that this movie is the ideal quarantine movie, I think. A movie all about a bunch of fellas just spending just a bit too much time together, slowly going more and more insane as things complicate, all while an invisible enemy torments them. This all feels like a really on-the-nose metaphor for coronavirus. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes. Um, I've seen this now, like, with with COVID, you know, people have sort of rediscovered or have found the movie for the first time because of it and said like, wow, this is so like prescient. How did they know? And it's, and the reality is (laughs) I, (laughs) I think um, John Carpenter himself is quoted as saying uh, on the commentary track, uh, the paranoia is the glue that holds the movie together. And I honestly think like, yes. And I think that paranoia is what, what makes it feel so universal. Um, and I think another great thing, you said this so well, and I, I didn't think about it until you said it, but yeah, uh, it's really an ensemble movie. Um, there's a reason that 
Kurt Russell kind of feels like the main character. I can kind of get into that later, but um, it's really an ensemble movie where the main character is the, yeah, it's, it's the Antarctic. It's the, it's, it's the elements. It's, it's, we have those, those establishing shots at the beginning that sort of set the tone. God, it's so sick. Right? You put a helicopter flight scene in a movie, I'm in. <laughs> Even that like shit disease movie Outbreak yeah. has a helicopter dogfight. And I was like, all right, this movie doesn't suck, actually. <laughs> this movie is so cool. Because it reminds me of just being in a bathtub with like a like a G.I. Joe toy set. Mm-hmm. Just being like, meow. <laughs> God, it's so much fucking fun. And... I think that the only way to really kind of like explain how this film doesn't necessarily have a main character and why John Carpenter now, in my opinion, he's probably my favorite filmmaker. Oh, yes. I think that the thing pushed me over the edge. Uh, My like all time favorite filmmaker. And I know this is very like hashtag film Twitter me is uh, it's uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles to me just like pushed the craft so much. Uh, it's like you really cannot measure how much he changed for film just because he was just dicking around with a camera and was like, ah, that's cool. Oh, yeah. We're going to put that in, you know? And it's like, but John Carpenter, his movies are not low budget. You know, they're air quotes, low budget. Halloween, I think, was his lowest. But, like, the fact that he does so much with such little funding pushes him, like, over the edge. He is. This film like solidified him not only as like oh he's a he's a director who could turn anything into gold in my opinion it's like no he's a master of his craft and the fact that he just like kind of faded away with time is a fucking tragedy I um I agree with you in that John Carpenter he uh you could sort of see it from his early student films uh I've seen a couple of them and uh, one of them is a sort of a night stalker sort of like very reminiscent of Halloween. It's like uh, like a um, it's like a college student. She's like walking home and it's like she's being followed. And it's sort of it's a horror thriller sort of thing. Um, but you could sort of see like the prototype of Halloween in it. So like from his early days at USC, like Carpenter, um, he's he had sort of this innate understanding, I think. Um, that worked really well with the genre. And it's funny because it's not what he wanted to do. He really do, he originally wanted to make like westerns and like contemporary movies, but he just sort of fell into the it's horror so movie. It's so wild to me. Yeah, it, it you you um in interviews even today he's very like, yeah, you know, I didn't really want to do horror, but I just sort of found a niche in it and it worked for him and um <laughs> It, but yeah, I didn't want to become the greatest horror director of all time, <laughs> but I guess that, you know, things happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just so funny. Um, but I think what makes him what makes him really good at his craft is that he's, he's one, he's very good at as, as far as like staging, as far as direction. He's like excellent with with uh, just like the way he frames things. He's he's able to make something that shouldn't be interesting, interesting. Right. It could just be like, especially in the thing, it's if there are like moments where you're like, it's literally just a bunch of dudes in a chair, like all tied up. Yeah. Just watching another character do a test. 
and yet... Yeah, just shots of their face yeah. with a guy with a flamethrower without any flames coming out of it. Correct. You know, it's just, it literally is like, it feels like a cop procedural in parts. And usually those make me, like, fall asleep. Because I don't want to see the paperwork part, I want to see the shooting part. Right. But it's like that whole scene, it's so tense. And it's just, he's just a master. I mean, it's like, I, I'm i going to look up what the budget for this movie was. Because I just want to know... Uh, like truly like the magic that he did. So the budget for the thing was $10 million, which is about what I expected. And what's crazy is it pulled in $19.6 million just, uh, Oh no, that is global. Never mind. So this movie, you know, like, like now that we're in the Marvel, um, era of film, uh, I talk about this literally every episode and I'm sorry, guys, Marvel's the dominant cultural force. Marvel, you know, the films cost like $180 million to make, and that's not counting marketing, which is probably double the cost. So it's like, you look at how much they pull in and it's like, you know, $180 million will pull them back, you know, uh, $600 million. And it's like, holy shit, that's so much money. But then you like really break down how much they brought in and it's like, oh, you know, they profited 100%. You know, it's a, it's not, it, the numbers are really, really big, but also the amount of money you're shoving into, it's huge. John Carpenter did that. He made a hundred percent profit <laughs> off of the thing. He, in my mind, just as successful. And I'm bitter. You know, um, so I actually just, uh, I actually just, for, uh, for out of my own curiosity, um, I want to just preface this. A lot of the information I'm going to say in this episode comes from like, it comes from trivia that I've seen like from interviews, but there's a really great resource. Um, as of this recording, it's still online. It's called the original fan. And to get to it, you just type in the original fan.blogspot.com. And it's a blog that is no longer active, but Stuart Cohen, the co-producer of the movie, he wrote um, a bunch of entries about the movie about his experience with it. And I the reason I bring this up is because I just looked at his post that said the budget of the movie. And he said that the final cost with overages, because there was a, I think it was originally supposed to be $10 million, but he said the final cost with overages was $12,400,000. And then with the studio overhead, it was about $15 million, But that was still really low. And it pulled in $19 million, So, I mean, regardless, it profited. And this, like... That, that that's so crazy to me at like how much film has changed because in the 80s you saw the shit like all the time with like you know like robocop the movie studios would just toss a million dollars to just some guy with a story and they'd be like yeah go make me a picture with this and they'd like throw the money at them and like you every now and then you get a robocop where it'd be like you know one million dollars was a budget and it profited 40 million dollars right, right like it's so crazy and it's like looking at these budgets and how all these Marvel movies that we watch are going to feel dated in 10 years. Oh, yeah. Like, like we're, we're going to watch the, like, Iron Man 2, and it's going to be like, wow, this looks like shit. But we went back and watched um, The Thing from 1982, and that monster's scarier than almost like any other monster I've seen in a, <laughs> in a horror movie, because he uses practical effects, and, like, a ton of care goes into this. Yes, and I think, I think what makes those effects... Which, by the way, there are studio execs who don't like it. Like, there are studio execs. This happened with a theme prequel. Um, And I don't want to beat the movie up because it already... It's gotten beaten up enough as it is. Um, There are things I like about it, but one thing that really doesn't work are the visual effects in that 
for that movie in particular, they originally were going to use practical effects with some CGI just to augment them. And what happened was the movie basically got um, forced to use digital effects over the practical effects in post-production. And as a result, it doesn't look as convincing as the original movie's practical effects uh, still do today. Which really goes to show you there's more to it than like uh, making like a slick sort of like intricate detailed computer model. Yeah, it's horrifying. And even in the final scene of the movie where like the beast does like a video game transformation type thing where he's like, and this is my final form. (laughs) And it starts showing all the different things it can turn into in that awful fleshy spongy body. What's funny is like. Any other movie from this era that did that, that would be the funniest thing you'd seen, like like the entire film. But something about John Carpenter's where it's like, yes, that scene was goofy in theory, right? But, oh my god, that's exactly what you wanted to see in the big fight. I wanted to see this thing get as nasty as physically possible, and it's like a mucousy, bleeding wet, uh, fleshy, growling, gurgling thing. And it's like, I, don't, I just don't know how that team managed to put that together. You know, it's it's mind-blowing. Anything from even as it's, like, coming up through the floorboards and it, like, becomes a shark that, like, shreds its way through the floor. Does that, all that was practical effects, too. And it's like, if you look at, you know, in theory, the first Star Wars movie when it came out, that shouldn't hold up. Because George Lucas has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> but, like, whenever you really take a look at it, though, uh, it's, like, all these, like, practical effects, uh, there's charm to it. And then you go and you watch, like, the specialized editions from, like, 2005. They look like shit now. Because, like, computer graphics are just constantly improving. But the one thing that you won't really see major improvements with is, like, I don't know, a puppet that screams at you. Right. Right. That shit's so cool to me. We've also, you know, something to keep in mind is that we've been doing um, practical effects, illusions, whatever you want to call them, for like as long as film has been a thing. Uh, you know, and computers are still very new. And they've, like you said, they're developing like rapidly. Um, another, you know, another problem, I, I don't want to say, because there are some Marvel movies I like. I don't mean to pick on them, but, you know, you get, um, these visual effects houses and you say, okay, here's your budget. Here's your timeline. This is what you got to do. And then just go do it. Right. And so sometimes you get like really inspired work where you're like, wow, this looks believable. You know, like for me, like an example would be guardians of the galaxy with rocket and Groot. Um, you know, I feel like they're real characters that I can see. And, uh, whereas I don't want to pick on anything, but there are some effects in Marvel movies where I'm like, oof. This is not going to age well. It already doesn't look good. It's going to look even worse. But to me, like, the best effects are the practical ones. Or, you know, I, I think there are good... There, there's definitely great CGI. Um, but I think you have to try to ground it as much as possible. Yeah, same with, like, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Absolutely. I was watching a video essay on it. The Tony Zhao video on, like, there is no, like, good CGI. Because good CGI is CGI you don't see. So it's like Mad Max Fury Road, that canyon scene where you're driving through the center of this dark canyon. That's not real. That doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. They made that. 
and it's so cool. So it's it's really tough to like find that middle ground. And I'm sure in like 20 years we're gonna go back and watch Mad Max Fury Road, and we're gonna be like, we believe those were rocks. <laughs> like, come on, you know, that's gonna happen to us, just like it happened with the prequels, where we're like, oh man, this looked like the most futuristic thing, and now it's like, what's this shit? You just, <laughs> like we're like spoiled now. How quickly it's uh improved on us i will say this about the thing i the movie uses pretty much every effect available to them at the time um more or less i they tried to so something that i think is interesting is that they tried to use stop motion um with a puppet uh for the blair dog huge monster thing at the end and it didn't look convincing so carpenter cut it so there were more effects that carpenter said okay this doesn't look good i'm cutting it and as a result like the final movie, everything looks really convincing. Yeah, speaking of, I mean, going into the beginning of this movie, one thing that I thought was, like, goofy for a second, but then kind of was, like, taken back by is, uh, you know, the movie opens up with this very realistic-looking disc spaceship mm-hmm. just, like, scorching through space and around a planet. And then the title card for the film tears through space and time Mm. and it scared the shit out of me (laughs) because i was looking at my phone (laughs) this immediately cuts to antarctica in 1982 you can tell that this is in the past because it looks like all the glaciers are still intact. <laughs> uh, this cuts to a helicopter sequence of a very serious team of men chasing a husky. And this husky's fucking hauling it. Yes. Uh, it's hard for the helicopter to keep up with it. And before we have any time to form a bond with the puppy, maybe even like give it a name, a uh, man in the helicopter starts shooting at it. And it's after this sequence that we get introduced to our air quotes main character, played by Kurt Russell, is a character name is McCready. It's one of two character names that I know from this movie. <laughs> who is playing chess on one of those old PC terminals. And the second that he gets cocky, you know, he's like, he's like, oh yeah, you didn't see that shit coming, did you? Uh, the computer starts to beat him. He starts to lose. And naturally, he calls it a cheating bitch, then pours his whiskey into it, Completely destroying the computer. <laughs> Poor baby, you're starting to lose it, aren't you? Your move, King to Rook One. My move, Rook to Knight Six. Checkmate. Checkmate. Cheating bitch. It's it's a really great character introduction, right? Because one, and honestly, like I, I and I, this is not something I realized until later, but the way that the thing, the creature, the alien, sort of operates is that it it's basically has all these pieces like a game of chess. And also, McCready, you know, he is like cocky, like you said, like he he gets cocky and then he loses. And in the movie itself, when you see the creature, the men don't fully realize what's going on until it's too late to stop the thing from assimilating at least one of them. Um, And then by the time they realize it, the paranoia reaches an all time high and they have to gain control again. 
And that's, you know, and that's, that's really like where the movie succeeds so well is it shows his paranoia and it's something that we can sort of, it taps into our own anxiety, our own fear. And yeah, I just, I love though, like, I think Kurt Russell is, this is one of my favorite roles that he's done. And, you know, you just got that long beard, the long hair that it took him like a year to oh, grow yeah. out. Um, he's by himself in his shack drinking with that, you know, he's milking the JB uh, whiskey. And it's just, uh, it's like a really great introduction. Thank you for bringing up his look too, because I posted about this and this wasn't a joke. Kurt Russell's supposed to be like a grizzled Arctic, like outdoorsman. And his skin is perfect. (laughs) He's just like, he looks like he was like put through a Snapchat beautifying filter. This whole movie. He's just a beautiful boy. He's, and there's like nothing we can do <laughs> about it. Like they try to put scars on his face in one of his movies and he still looks like a little cherub. Like even in he's uh just, even he's when just, he's playing like Snake Pliskin and the Oh Escape yeah, he still movies. looks gorgeous. Right? Yeah. It's like he's supposed to be this hardened guy, like he's an outlaw, this hardened dude who hates the government, and you're like Man, he's still really handsome, though. They couldn't hide that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like literally not a single blemish on his face. <laughs> It's after this that we learn that the guys in the helicopter are actually Norwegian. Yes. And instead of asking any questions or try to calm them down, the Americans in the base immediately throw one of their 100 grenades at the helicopter, completely destroying it. Okay, so this is where my this is where my nerd, my thin nerd knowledge will come out. Um, Hit me. Okay, so the Norwegian, the way the scene goes down, they grab the grenade because they they basically want to slow the dog down and they're desperate and they're tired. That's something that should be noted too. These guys haven't slept. Um, they've just been through like a horrifying ordeal. Um, so what happens is one of them goes to grab the grenade and accidentally pulls the pen and then drops it. Oh. And um, I believe he's saying shit or oh no or something like along those lines in Norwegian. And... The one Teo Tehuta. Yeah. One runs away. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> one runs away while the other's trying to grab the grenade, which you could argue is kind of Oh, so it just looks like an outright attack. Yeah. And so they of course it takes the uh, helicopter and the the one man trying to grab the grenade. The other one has his gun. He the dog has already made his way to the guys in the camp, the Americans in the uh, outpost. So the dog's already made his introduction, and they're like, oh, hey, dog. The Norwegian tries to warn them about the dog, but they don't understand him. So he, of course, you know, can't communicate with them, and he takes the gun and just starts shooting madly and hits one of the Americans named Benins um, right in the thigh. So, you know, everyone's scared. Everyone's scattering. They're like, oh, God, this guy's got an assault rifle. Yeah, and, like, tensions are super high after that, too. Because, like, like, the Nords don't say sorry. No. Yeah. Or, you know, like, oh, that's your dog. They just start shooting. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is a move that all Nords are known for. <laughs> so, naturally, the shooter gets shot in the eyeball. That's the, um, the thing the Americans are known for. You know, Gary's, the like, the, the captain of the station. He's the cowboy, right? He's got... He carries his gun around on his hip. He He's a shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy. Oh, yeah. A guy that you absolutely want isolated in a, a base with you that has no surveillance. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's during the shooter's autopsy that we learn that these guys had just gone insane. Uh, this is the hook for the story, really, because what made them go insane? Right. The Americans in the base think that it was bunker fever, which feels oddly appropriate given that I have pretty much obeyed quarantine guidelines since March. Like, I get why they went batshit insane, given the, you know, everything. <laughs> and, and I'm not just riffing. This movie feels oddly appropriate given the circumstances of this whole disease. <laughs> Uh, sorry to go off on a tangent. No, it's okay. I'm one of the very lucky people who've gotten to work from home this entire time. Like, my job took this threat seriously, and I've been working from home since, like, March. And, like, I... Like, regardless, March became April, became June, became September, and here we are. Except now, I am also my daughter's teacher, so on top of work, there's that element, and on top of that, not being able to go to a restaurant and order a goddamn soda pop without thinking that I'll kill my whole family if I touch a countertop without washing my hands afterwards. I get why they go insane! You know, with a monster looming in the background that you can't see. And a monster that... Sorry. And a monster that can contaminate you, right? And take you over. It's definitely a... Yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. You're helpless to stop it once it starts. Yeah. And it's after this autopsy that the Americans decide to go check out the Norwegian base to see what happened. Or, you know, like, what may have caused them to go insane. Right. And this place looks like shit. Like, there's axes in the wall. There's ice everywhere. Although this seems like a Scandinavian dream, they stumble upon a corpse that has its wrist slit and is frozen in time. Yes. Like a completely rigid corpse with blood that was pouring from the wrists frozen like icicles. John Carpenter's ability to be morbid without showing you anything too brutal always surprises me. Like, I'm a longtime advocate of implying violence off-screen, as opposed to outright showing it, because the effectiveness of showing something like this will never fall victims to things like, ah, this movie's graphics look so dated, or like, you know, having to use claymation to fight something. Right. You know, this, this to me is like, implying violence as a way that your movie will forever be timeless, and that's why, like, Shaun of the Dead's one of my all-time favorite movies. And the scene that I love to bring up is whenever he goes to the convenience store for the second time, because they like mimic a shot from the beginning of the movie. And the second time there's like bloody handprints on stuff. And as he's walking, he like slips in like a huge pile of blood, but you don't see any of it. He's just like, hello. All you (laughs) see is a bloody, a bloody handprint, like on the door. And he doesn't notice that handprint. Right. And then like, it's and you're right. It's the same. It's mimicking the same shot to be in the movie. So we know the story. We know the layout. Um, and yet, yeah, there's like a lot implied there. He walks by a lot of carnage and things going on, but the camera never stops and never like gives yeah. you a good view of anything other than Sean. So it's great. It's like it's it makes it more comical. Um, and I agree with you, Carpenter. You know. He's already like he's already done a number of movies at this point. And a little backstory is that the co-producer of the movie Stuart Cohen, they were trying to get this off the ground for a number of years, this movie. And he wanted John originally for it and John hadn't made like Halloween yet. So John had to kind of go off and, you know, prove his mettle. But it took a very long time to like get a script to get it to a place that um that a studio was interested. The th- movie that actually got this movie off the ground was Alien. Really? Yes, Alien. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, Alien happening. That was like a big moment where the studio suddenly looked at the thing and said, okay, 
I think we get what you're doing or what you want to do with this movie now. Um, let's let's do it. People want to see your gross monsters in tight metal places. Yeah, you're... go make your thing movie. <laughs> so anyway, Carpenter, um, he had signed on for it, and there was a bit of a back and forth. After a lot of failed attempts, they were able to get a writer on board, and his name um, was Bill Lancaster, and he had ridden the Bad News Bears, not. Not the um, I'm not speaking. No shit. I'm not speaking of the Richard Linklater movie. I'm speaking of the original one, which I like the Linklater movie. Yeah. Um, but the original, which is like one of the most problematic <laughs> movies. <laughs> they like make little kids say the n word. Yeah. No. Like it's not a movie. Like like today doesn't you know? There's a lot of stuff uh, that you'd look back and say, ooh, yeah. Um, you wouldn't do it today. You know how people talk about Blazing Saddles? How they're like, this isn't a movie that could be made today. Yeah. Bad News Bears literally couldn't get made today. No, and. <laughs> They'd be like, no, you're not going to make a little kid say the N-word or like... You have all these kids, yeah, and in, like a lot of the situations they put the kids in, you're like, wow, that's... <laughs> um, yeah, but one thing that's really good about the script um, in terms of like how it's written is that each each kid like is very well defined as a character, including the coach, and it's an ensemble movie, so it works really well on that level, and that's why that's why Bill was chosen for the movie was because they wanted someone who had like, could like do sort of an ensemble sort of thing and write like really effective characters with very little, um, without having the characters like spell out their backstory or having to like jump a bunch of exposition on the audience. And he, yeah, there's nothing more embarrassing than that shit wherever it's like, you you know, like there's a guy in the base who's like, like the big muscular black guy. And there's, like, nothing about, like, I don't trust you because of where I came from or anything like that. It's, like, the guy's just a guy in the base. But you can tell from his backstory this dude had a rough upbringing. Yeah. Like, there's, like, lack of trust with, like, people that are near him. And it's, like, he is completely different from the other characters in the base where it's, like, uh, there's even, like, another black guy in the base where, like, movies like this, especially from the 80s, would have, like, the black characters talk jive and be like oh you know they're all ultimately the same person and they talk cool and they've got cool clothes these were just like two guys it was just like completely circumstantial that they happen to be black and that's when i was like this movie's written really fucking well which i know sounds like a low bar to be like wow you were diverse and you didn't you know like you actually wrote people to be like people but you'd be surprised at how often this doesn't happen yeah and especially like when you go back and look at movies from like older eras. Yeah, like it's it's embarrassing or cringy or, you know, very uncomfortable and disappointing too. But uh yeah, this movie doesn't have that problem. Um it has great character it has great character work across the board. Like I think it does that scene with the Norwegian when he fires on the men, the Americans at the outpost. I think it does a pretty good job it's sort of like cuz I think everyone comes out pretty much to see what's going on. So you get to meet all the characters. George, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Are you? Yeah. What's going on there? These Norwegians had cabin fever, they think. They go and they see a base that's torn apart. They find a block of ice hollowed out where something might have been. Which, by the way, I love that. Sh- so... One thing I love about this movie is that Carpenter, he, it doesn't feel like Halloween necessarily. Like I think Halloween uses a lot of POV shots. It's very good. It like, 
It feels like a haunted house sort of movie. This feels different. Like you could tell that Carpenter wanted to kind of do something different. So like he doesn't use the POV sort of Carpenter shot very often in this movie. It's only used a couple times. Um, One of those times is one of the characters, Copper. He's a doctor. He walks in through the hallway because McCready calls him. And he walks in through the hallway and we follow through his POV into this room where there's this hollowed out, hollowed out like bathtub, if you will, of ice where something... Yeah, like massive. Yeah, something rested. Yeah, I don't even know how big you... Like, it's like 15 feet long, yeah. like 8 feet wide. This thing's huge. And it says a lot without saying anything. One thing I like is how smart the guys are in this movie. The characters are smart. Like, they, they make mistakes, but they make, like, human mistakes. And they feel... Oh, yeah. But they still feel like intelligent men who have to work together, and they know each other. And like you said, probably too much. Um... Yeah. And I like how it's like, okay, grab what you can. And so Copper's like, okay, he grabs a bunch of papers and they find some videotapes. Even though they're not sure they can understand them, they're like, just get it anyway. And we got to get back to the base because the weather's going to get bad. Oh, you you know what they find? Oh, yeah. They find a corpse. They get their hands on a thing, (laughs) which is technically a title drop. It is. So, (laughs) and, um, Mike, how would you describe this thing's body? So I would say um, it feels very Lovecraftian. Um, But to be more specific, it has like, it's very fleshy. There's like tendrils to it. It's like amorphous in a way. Like it doesn't have a solid form, it seems. Like it seems like it's in the middle of changing or it was. And it looks like it's in agony. Um, You know, you see like a flash of limbs, like a slimy like arm and a hand, and maybe like, and then like two faces, or maybe it's a split face. We're not sure, but it looks like a char. It's also charred, so it looks like they tried to burn it. Yeah, and seeing see seeing a body that looks like this, naturally, the first thing you'd want to do is just start cutting into it. <laughs> so that's happening. And remember that dog from earlier? Yes. Well, things get weird. Uh. In the base, there are all these huskies, because it's Antarctica, and overall it's thematically appropriate. And this one dog that these Nords were shooting at gets thrown into the cage with all the other mutts, because one of the guys in the base is a giant baby that can't handle being next to animals. It's Benin's, of course. Yeah, of course, the little weasel. He whines throughout the movie. So they toss this dog into a cage with all the other dogs, and almost immediately... This dog's face splits in half and becomes a boss from Dark Souls. (laughs) Like, it's made entirely of bleeding flesh. It has this nozzle that sprays out a dissolving liquid. And its intestines turn into prehensile tentacles that wrap themselves around the bodies of the dogs that are in the cage with it. This scene's horrific. (laughs) It kills almost every single one of the dogs that's in the cage. And the only way that they can kill it is if they burn it to death with a flamethrower which is really convenient out here in Antarctica. I love the way this scene goes down, right? Because prior to that, there's there's some establishing shots of the camp, so you kind of get an idea. You can sort of see the men going about their business. There's a shot of the dog. By the way, he uh, his name is Jed, the dog who played the thing dog. 
And Aww. yeah, and it's funny because even in the uh, commentary track, Carpenter is like really impressed with the acting of Jed. He said the dog was like super well behaved, <laughs> and like he was just so impressed with uh, how he hit all his marks. But anyway, so Jed kind of walks around the camp, and uh, there's a shot, and this shot is one of the shots in the movie that's under a lot of debate, right? Like people want to know like what is the meaning of this shot. So the dog walks into a room and there's a shadow on the wall of one of the men. And the men turns and looks at the dog and then it fades to black. So that's that prefaces the scene with the dog in the cage because then that happens and we see that the dog is, you know, it was obviously this creature. And then, of course, McCready is up and he hits the fire alarm and wakes everybody up. So they all come to the cage. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, which is funny. Um <laughs> But it's Clark, the guy who sort of sees to the dogs, that first finds them in distress. It's sort of like there's an eloquence to it that you could tell that it's carefully thought out, but it also sounds like words that people would say. So an example would be, "What's what the hell is was in there? He's like, I don't know, but whatever it is, it's pissed off. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Childs. What is it? That's like actually, it's definitely 80s action lingo, but it's not in the way where it's like something that's got a gravestone waiting for it. Right. You know, it's like nothing corny like that. He's like, I don't know whatever the fuck that is. It's it's yelling. Yeah. I don't know what the <laughs> hell that thing is, but it's, it's pissed. It's mad and it's scary. And I don't know. By the way, the dog effect. So this was done by Stan Winston. He's a famous special effects artist and technician, but he uh, his studio did this because Rob Botton and his team were so inundated with work that they didn't have the time to do this effect. So he, Stan Winston did it for them. And he gets a special thanks. Him and his studio get a special thanks at the end. Um, but it, another thing Stan Winston did was like the Jurassic Park um, T-Rex animatronic for the first movie. Oh, yeah, he's a legend. Oh, yeah. So... This dog effect was done by a legend, you know, like Rob Bottom's effects are great, but I just, I just think it's great that another, they had help from like a legendary studio, um, and visual effects artist. Um, and the effect is great and it's actually really detailed. So we see this thing open up, like it's like, it opens its flesh up and then like, it's like these tendrils come out with these teeth and it's actually meant to be dog tons and teeth into like a flower. It's rough to look at. <laughs> it is absolutely. Yeah, it, it does bloom like a flower. It is absolutely like disgusting. Um, <laughs> the craziest thing was that they trained Jed to do that. Yeah. No, that's that's completely just what Jed did. <laughs> I, John Carpenter's like, what the heck? We got to make a movie about this dog. <laughs> <laughs> they set the dog on fire um, or the thing dog on fire. Then they have to do an autopsy on that. Yeah, and we're back at the autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> with a new body. <laughs> so this is the second time and that they have to do an autopsy. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. He's just like covered in blood and they're like, hey, we got a new one. Yeah. This is a really disgusting thing that you don't understand and is disturbing on many different levels. Also, we're mad that you're taking so yeah, long. Yeah, <laughs> hurry up and tell us what this thing is. Yeah. And we find out that this thing, title drop, this thing eats and consumes whatever is near it. And it becomes an imitation of whatever it absorbs. Right. This thing is otherworldly. Yes. And implies that the monster could be anyone. The monster could even look like you and me. 
which I know sounds like a story out of like a like the middle of a children's horror book, but really that's the scariest thing that you could have. Some otherworldly monster, like sure, but if you couldn't differentiate between the people around you and that beast, that that's genuinely extra spooky. So I am glad that you say that because that's honestly the hook of the. To me, that's the hook of the original story, and that's what make like to me makes a movie a no brainer or makes this like a adaptation a no brainer. But it's funny because this is technically a remake of the thing from another world, which is why it's just called the thing. It's a shortened version of the title. Um, but both are based on, of course, uh, a short story, a novella called um, "Who Goes There," and. It was originally published in a pulp science magazine and later got republished as a novella. And the central concept, of course, is like, okay, you know, the man next to me might be a monster. You know, it's people aren't who they appear to be. Um, it's a story yeah. about existential dread. It's about, you know, questioning your identity and the and, and trust and, and paranoia. It's it's something that is universal. Um and the thing from another world didn't do that. The creature is plant-based. He looks kind of like Frankenstein. He's like a very much a guy in a costume. Um, yeah, you sent me the picture of it. That was not what I was expecting. Yeah. I'm very happy the liberties that John Carpenter took with this story. Because had it been that, it'd be like, oh yeah, this movie, nobody would have went and saw that shit. Yeah, no, like the original novella's description of the monster versus what it looked like in The Thing from Another World versus, of course, this movie. Oh, it's it's so much better in this movie. Um, I, I One of the things that I think that they did very well was they embraced the chameleon aspect of the, the monster. Um, I, one thing that they dropped, which I'm happy that they did, because I don't really know how you'd even do it, um, the monster in the original has a telepathic ability. It can project its thoughts and read the minds of people. Um, so it's another wrinkle uh, that the men have to deal with on top of uh, the chameleon aspect of it. But I always kind of felt like it was overkill. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, because like, the horror comes from like these men are literally losing their minds just by the existence of it. Right. But if it was also like, I want you to kill your father... It'd be like, all right, come on now. This thing's just God. Yeah, and it, like it reads mine so they can read what you're like planning. That said, another thing that I think Lancaster and Carpenter did really well, which I think this was born from Bill's script, was uh, originally in the novel, it's the American base and the American base alone out there. So basically, they're the ones that find the ship. They're the ones that find the creature. They're the ones that follow it out. And they're the ones that have to like deal with it. It's There's no Norwegian camp. That was entirely made by Bill. And I think that's a really great way to start the story and to get us intrigued because it's a mystery kind of at first, right? Because you don't know what's going on. You don't know what this thing is. And then slowly the men, using their own abilities and intelligence, unravel what's going on. And by the time they realize it, it's too late. The thing has already taken over a couple of their men, at least. Yeah. And, I mean, this is made pretty evident by, like, their uh, response to reviewing the footage that they find of the Nords that they took from their base. You know, they saw that they were planning explosives in something mm -hmm. and wanting to detonate it. You know, whatever they found, they didn't want getting out <laughs> into, uh, like, general society. And guess what? We we find out that what they were detonating wasn't just, you know, some block of ice. It wasn't some monster. 
It was a giant spaceship. Yes. And when I say giant, I'm talking like, what was that? Like thousands of feet by thousands of feet. Like if you mushed an aircraft carrier, it would be comparable size. This thing is unbelievably tall. It's this huge, it's like, like a meteor hit the earth. That's how big the basin was that held this spaceship. After this, and the corpse is starting to bleed on its own again. Yes. And this isn't lost on everyone, luckily. Turns out that the designated base conspiracy theorist has been reading through the journals that the Nords left, and guess what? The thing is almost impossible to kill. You'll have to rip this thing apart molecule by molecule in order in order to do any sort of lasting damage to it. Because this monster has absorbed thousands of life forms and probably wants to move on to humans next. And it takes maybe one minute for this thing to unthaw and immediately ta- attack the baldest guy on the crew, <laughs> which is unfair and feels hostile to me. <laughs> it's interesting because it, it's never really said, you know, obviously this corpse is we- is a weakened version of the thing, right? It's been burned. It's been ripped apart. It probably moves at a very slower pace, but it might also just be biding its time, waiting for the right moment until it's alone with somebody that it can grab them. And that's what happens. We see Windows goes because he needs to get the keys. Um, he comes back with the keys. Benin's isn't there anymore. Or he was briefly was grabbed by a bunch of tentacles, which they did basically with by a bunch of, by, by a bunch of practical tentacles that they happen to have on set and a bunch of KY jelly. They just slathered all over the nice. uh, actor. Um, We're making a different kind of movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> Biddens is running away. He's wearing new clothes and he's running away. So Mac gets back with Fuchs, the scientist who read through Blair's notes. I guess we should also note at this point that Blair has gone kind of crazy. Yeah, Blair's gone batshit insane. And one thing I wanted to talk about during this fight uh, Kurt Russell almost got incredibly hurt. Yes. 
I, I don't know if you noticed this. He holds up a table to like this guy or so Blair is like the oldest guy in the entire base and he's swinging a fireman's axe and destroying all the servers. He's like, he's losing his shit. He's been shooting at people. And then he, uh, McReady, Kurt Russell's character holds up a table to stop the ax and that ax pierces through the table. And that ax gets like inches from his face. And it doesn't look like a prop one. It doesn't look <laughs> like it's made out of plastic. It looks like a real ax that he was swinging around. I, I I love that. I love that sequence for so many different reasons. I guess we should also preface, we're moving around, we're jumping around in order, but um, I should probably, we should probably preface that by saying what makes Blair lose it is that he basically, with a computer, has the stakes spelled out. The reality of what yeah. what's, ha- what's going on. That if this thing gets to society, to civilization, that it will, it will just be a matter of just so little time before it's fully taken over. What do you think his reason is for doing this? So I think that actually what he thinks uh, needs to be done happens at the end of the movie. And uh, we'll get into it whenever we get to the end. But I really think that that was the prophecy that ends the movie. And um, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that what, what, once we get there. I think that it's very nihilist and it's a very realist hmm. um, yeah. view of what, what they need to do to control the situation. I like that. And that's that was my interpretation of it, too. And then I I found out, and this is how it is in the book, and the movie kind of does this, but the movie injects more ambiguity into the proceedings, so it's more open to interpretation. Um, in the book, Blair is already assimilated, and he does that because he knows that the men will basically isolate him, that they'll quarantine him. Yes. And he wants to be quarantined because he wants basically... He wants to get away, so he's going to use the other things there as a distraction so he can build a ship and get away. That's his ultimate goal. But what I like is that it works on different levels, you know, and especially with the information that we know at the time. Because with the information that we know at the time, it's like, well, maybe he's just like, all right, we need to just burn everything down. Nobody gets out of here. Like, we can't we can't let this thing escape. Um, or he could be doing this as a whole ruse, so that way he could be isolated so he can't escape. And that was part of reshoots. So that scene was actually written by Carpenter. Getting off topic a little, but halfway through production, John, so they basically shot on the sound stages at Universal Hollywood. John had a break between shooting there and then going on location to the Arctic in Stewart, British Columbia. So he watched a cut of the movie, and what he saw really concerned him. He didn't like the movie. He was very worried about the direction of the movie. One of the things that he felt wasn't working was the way that they had presented the thing creature. He felt like the assimilation process wasn't um, fully conveyed well enough. He felt it was too subtle, and he was worried that audiences were going to be confused and not get the stakes and why the men were so concerned. So he went and reshot that. He smashed up some of the chopper pretty good. Charles, go see if he got to the tractor. Blair, after being caught, says to watch Clark, which sparks off the great debate, which is who is the monster among them. And this kicks off the second phase of the movie. The movie goes from a monster-in-the-house horror-adjacent kind of movie to an outright whodunit-style murder mystery. 
John Carpenter is one of the most talented filmmakers alive because he is, he's this good. There's so many modern filmmakers that try to make two genre, like a movie that's two genres at the same time and just fail. It always falls flat. And John Carpenter just nails it. He's like, nah, this is a new kind of movie now. And uh, the changeup is super welcome because like the first mystery is who got into and drank all of the blood samples. The lock wasn't broken. So it had to be someone in the base. And um, I think it would be right. funny if the monster didn't even know that there was blood and it was just some guy who had a fetish and just got caught. He's like, all right, guys, <laughs> like, I'm not the monster. Right, Calm right. down. I'm just a sex freak. <laughs> uh, the team starts to fall apart after this pretty fast. Uh, Fuchs, a guy in the base, panics, then runs out of the base and then kills himself by burning himself to death. You know, uh, I have no clue what caused this, really. You know, like, was he escaping a monster? Was he the monster? Uh, there's no way to know. But all that we know is that there's another man dead in this crew. This starts off a domino effect of panic. Different members at the base start being accused of being the thing. One of the most wild being McCready, our main character, who's covered in snow and half freezing to death trembling holding a bundle of dynamite way too close to his lit flare uh you know all, yes all, during this all this panic that one of the guys in the crew faints and then stops breathing and because this is a classic monster in the house horror movie no one learns anything and the thing disintegrates this guy's body who just faked to have a heart attack kills the doctor by opening up a giant stomach mouth ripping off both of his arms and then, as he performs CPR, yeah, as like he's trying to save him, yeah, literally just trying to save him. And then the head of the body that ate the guy's arms falls off, and it begins to walk around on spider legs, which leads to the best line read in the entire movie. You gotta be fucking kidding! <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding! it's super yeah it's funny because it, after you see the thing it's just funny to me how um there's just something really interesting to me how like iconic the movie is now because you've that line has been used more than once now oh yeah um, uh, just just that's and even that sort of attitude when you see something just really messed up that you can't even fathom yeah yeah i mean um, you see it in i think it's in the incredibles too it's like oh you gotta be kidding man. yeah yeah like that's there's something really uh, <laughs> there's something really funny like darkly funny about that scene um but also like i i just love yeah it's just so well done and i love I love how the head almost gets away, but it's also the head's not as intelligent as the other things. <laughs> yeah, the so smaller it is, the dumber to... it is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just it, it operates on instinct, so it's just like I have to get away. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna die. I gotta get away from this flame. Um, that scene, by the way, with the head coming off, it's like a decapitation, basically. Uh, that was one of the scenes that really upset critics and audience members. Can't blame them. Premiered. God, the yeah. face looks just it's... like Rodney Dangerfield's too. That was like all I could think of. <laughs> I could, I could see that. Yeah, I could, I, I could absolutely see that. It's here that the movie pivots, 
And the thing isn't the only thing that we have to be scared of anymore. The thing has the ability to shapeshift into anyone that it absorbs. And the ability for a monster capable of like this much destruction that could camouflage in plain sight is terrifying. It's enough to make anyone go insane. But what's even scarier is when uninfected people start to do the thing's job for it. McCready shoots yes. and kills a completely healthy body for trying to punch him with a scalpel. And it's here that we learn that he's just gone insane. Because he himself has become the thing in a way, too. And it's here that, like, remember when I talked about the movie becoming a cop procedural? And how this ultimately should be boring? But, like, the way that it's filmed, it's genuinely captivating. McCready decides that now's the time to test the blood of every single person in the room. The way that he does this is by having his assistant, with the dirtiest knife that you can imagine, cut their hand and absolutely drain them. Then, with their blood sample, press a hot copper wire into it to test it. The thought here being that the blood of the thing works differently than a human's, and when it attacked with fire, it will retaliate. And that's exactly what happens. One of the guys is obviously the thing. His blood erupts into this monstrous creature, and he gets one last kill off before being burned to death with a flame. <laughs> So it's so f interesting because apparently when the movie was being prepped, uh, John Carpenter said this was like his favorite scene from the story, from the short story and the script as well. He, he said that like it was like just a scene that he could nail, that he knew he could do and that was in his wheelhouse. And it's just so, um, it's just a really clever scene, right? Because it, it's, it's taking the concept of the blood serum test and simplifying it in a way that's understandable. And it also, like we said before, it's tense as hell. Like, it's just shots of the men all tired, staring, just waiting for the test to go on. One thing I love about this scene, too, is at first the men don't believe the test. Oh, yeah, because nothing's happening. And it's an awful sound, too, yeah. the squeaking of the wire on the Petri dish. Oh, yeah, it's like a scraping, like, oh. like so, oh, it's just, it's just, it's unnerving. And I love in this scene... In other scenes too, but like in this scene especially, there's no music. No, it's, it's all just like silent. It's just the wind outside, the storm. God, it sucks. It's so tense. Yeah, and 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 all you just have the men breathing, watching the sound of the wire scraping and like searing the blood. Um, and I love how, in a very intelligent way, it's a reversal in this scene. It's revealed that Palmer, a co-pilot or assistant pilot is has been a thing and that was actually um in the shot that i described where there was a shadow on the wall and the dog thing approaches the person um that was supposed to be palmer's shadow no shit uh, all right that makes sense but what happened was the actor who plays palmer um his silhouette was too recognizable so they actually swapped him out for another crew member oh really that kind of resembled him but for a long time uh, people would ask Carpenter, and he's like, I don't know, I don't remember, because he's, you know, ambiguity as a storyteller, that's what you want to embrace. Um, and it was a long time ago. Uh, he may genuinely not remember. <laughs> he may not. No, he's done a lot. 
but Stuart Cohen kind of cleared that up for people, and it was something that some people suspected because it could all, it could either be Norris or Palmer, but it's not Blair because Blair is bald. That's true. Um, a hero. <laughs> yes, he is a hero. Wilfred Brimley is a great actor, by the way, He's and I so love him great. in this movie. He does so much with so little. Like his line deliveries are perfect in this movie. Um, he just died recently but, too, didn't he? He did. Like, like yeah, a he couple recently weeks passed ago? away. Um, I think more than a couple weeks. Uh, maybe maybe within the last year or two. I want to say. Yeah, I was like shocked to see him in this movie. I was like, oh, I thought he just did the commercials. Yeah, the diabetes testing supplies. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he's actually second build to Kurt Russell in this movie because Kurt Russell wow. is the most well known actor, and then Wilfred Brimley was next. Huh. So, right. So, havoc breaks loose. Palmer Thane attacks Windows and and unfortunately assimilates him. Palmer Thane. I love I love in this scene that he gets burned, and then I love that he runs out and McCready just walks out and just throws a stick of dynamite at him. He like lights it with it's a flamethrower. So flame thrower. fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, it's just I love too how the men go from being like. Fuck you, McCready, you're full of shit, too. McCready, burn him! Help us, huh? Yeah. Like, Please, we've always loved you. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were wrong, I'm sorry. Um, so, of course, he has to burn Windows, unfortunately, because Windows is turning and assimilating to a thing. And then after that, there's a really, like, hard cut, and we go back to just Childs. We go back to Childs, Nalls, and Gary, the three of them together on the couch. That's all who's left. And we test Nal's blood. McCready says, I guess you're good. Then they go to Childs. Then they go to Gary. And it ends with Gary screaming like a really great line about how he doesn't want to spend the rest of the winter on the fucking couch. It's so tied funny. to the fucking couch. It's just like such an yeah. old grumpy man line thing to say. Like, hurry oh, up. Yeah. I don't have my whole life ahead of me. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time... I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! You know, like, as they've made their way through every single person in this base, the only person they have left to test is Blair, the guy who destroyed that server room. They head back to his base, and he's escaped. He's escaped specifically uh, through the door that was bolted from the outside, so that's terrifying. And uh, also there's a giant hole in the ground that leads to the secret tunnel. This tunnel leads to an underground lab that has a makeshift spaceship at the bottom of it. Not exactly sure how some guy can repurpose helicopter parts together this fast, but you know what? Maybe he was one of those burnout gifted kids that Twitter talks about all the time. The hunt is on for Blair after this. This kicks off a whole search and destroy sequence that was probably super cathartic for everyone involved. Like, all this, by the way, was accompanied by that classic John Carpenter pulsing synth soundtrack that I've just grown to crave. Yes, um, it's, it's Carpenter. Carpenter did the uh, music with um, um, Morricone, I believe is how you say his name. I'm probably butchering it. I apologize to my Italian roots. Um, <laughs> but, yes, uh, Carpenter has this, like, pulsing synthetic sound that just permeates throughout the movie, and, and he... I should I should say it's used very carefully, but oh yeah, it's it's in this scene and it's great. Um, it's so good because the men the men basically decide that they're going to burn everything. It's like a suicide mission. They're going to burn everything and just blow it all up and take Blair and everything with them. And the reason it is is because they've realized that Blair's assimilate has become assimilated. At some point, he became a thing. 
They know that now. And they also know that Blair's contingency plan is to get frozen again because a rescue team is going to come whether they like it or not. That's Regardless true. of whether there's been a communication or not. So they know this and so does the thing. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, of course that'd be his MO to have them burn down the base. That's the only way he can ensure that he can be frozen forever. And, like, be near other hosts. Unless they take him, and that's why they decide that they're going to, like, blow it all up. Because they're just like, we got to take them him down. Like, we can't let him freeze. We got to just basically blow everything up and kill him. Yeah. Um, they have to detonate it, literally every single portion of the bedrock of this base. Like, the way that they do this is by completely separating and lowering their defenses while the thing roams around, quietly, ready to kill at any moment. Because remember, any part of his body can be used to absorb you and take his form. There's no stopping him. So you should separate and be as defenseless as possible. In fairness, they had to, they had to work fast with a very, like, with the little time, so I guess they could work fast. And, like, that no way. sleep, yeah. too. That's, yeah. you know, I... No sleep, they're stressed, they're tired. I get it, you know. Yeah, been there, brother. Yeah, and <laughs> of like the three people remaining, two decide to walk off on their own and get absolutely annihilated, leaving just McCready left. The thing realizes that he's been uh, lining the entire place with dynamite, and he takes his detonator box. The thing does, and after tearing yes. through the floor like a shark, ugh, it's so sick. It's it's like after this here the thing stands tall showing every single form it could possibly take at the same time just this awful wet looking mess completely done with practical effects by the way like we were talking about at the beginning of this episode After doing an incredibly smooth combat roll, uh, McCready picks up a stick of dynamite and blows the creature up, causing a huge fireball and completely destroying the base. And I want to point out. Oh yeah. I want to point out though. He also gives a great one-liner. Yeah. Fuck you too. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Fuck you too. Quintessential eighties. Great, <laughs> great delivery. Just like a great moment. And it's after this, he meets up with Childs, the only member of the base left alive besides himself. And they both realize that once the base's flames run out, they're probably dead. And instead of doing anything proactive, they decide that they both should probably die, just to be safe. And I think that this ultimately was what Blair was scared of and what he was arguing for. We got to destroy everything because none of us can make it out. Because even if there's a cell of this thing attached to us, if we make it back to general society, society's done. We cannot combat these creatures. They hide in plain sight, you know? And I really think that his argument being like, no, guys, we've already signed our, you know, our death warrant. Uh, the fact that, like, Childs and McCready realize this and just spend the whole time smoking and drinking until the flames run out, to me, was, like, realizing that Blair ultimately was right. Yes. I think I think something that's really fascinating about this scene, one, it's not in the book. This was entirely made by Bill Lancaster and, and, and uh, refined on set by Carpenter and the uh, cast, but... 
I think the ambiguity works really well, but there's also something sort of tragic and beautiful about it. You have these two guys. They're exhausted. They both could be things, but they both have reasons for why they disappeared, right? Um, for Childs, it was because he saw Blair, and he was told to torch Blair if he saw him. So he went after to kill him. And then for McCready, he went and blew up the rest of the base and everything. But those two men haven't seen each other since parting ways to go to go test Blair. So they don't fully trust each other. But um, I can only speak for the uh, my interpretation. And also, I know the intent of the original writer, but ultimately this is ambiguous. So it could be anything. You know, they could... I don't think they're both things because I don't think they would both be looking at each other, um, distrusting of one another. They were both. And I doubt Childs would be walking around with the flamethrower if he was the thing. Correct. Um, And I don't, I, we see McCready. So I, I think our perspective of it and based on how it was written from what I understand, both men were supposed to be human. And that, that was sort of the beautiful tragedy of it was that they're both human and that they're both going to die together just sort of like in a way where they've accepted their fate that's how i took it as well um was that they were two guys who truly believe that they had a civic duty for this monster to die here and there's only one way to guarantee that yes and there's sort of a you mentioned this before and i and i i I think i have an idea of what you're going to say so i don't want to like trample over you but i just want to say that people have kind of like described the movie as nihilistic and Carpenter himself has kind of said like it's part of his apocalyptic trilogy and you mentioned this um, at the start that you felt it was sort of like nihilistic and, re- and a mixture of nihilism and realism. And I think that realism is an important part of this. It's not just a nihilistic nothing matters ending. Um, it, what they do does matter. It saves the yeah. world, right? It's, it saves the rest of humanity from this thing. It's one of those things where it's like... There are a lot of 80s movies that come after this where the hero get where the hero gets a heroic death. You know, he goes out guns blazing, but this is the heroic death. Can you imagine anything harder than freezing to death after all you've like witnessed all of your friends die? You know, it's it's brutal, but ultimately that's what this is. Like, yes, it is a dark ending. Yes, there is no happy ending to this movie, but guess what? If we were in this situation, there wouldn't be a happy ending to this story either. We we all know what we no, need to do. No, it's 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 unfortunate. You know, unfortunately for our characters, it's grounded, and you know, there's a there's an element of uh, yes, there's that element of nihilism, but it's also I think realistic. It has to be, right? yeah. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. You know, it it's definitely reminiscent of disease. And at the time when the movie came out, you know, HIV, I was actually thinking that that was, was like, you know, even the blood testing, the metaphors to HIV AIDS. It's like, you know, like which one of you is the monster. If you have like the disease in you, you know, and it's like, yes, the ending doesn't match up perfectly with that interpretation, but there can be parallels. Cause I mean, that's literally how it was. Was if you were deemed HIV, it was like, don't even be in the same room as me. I don't want to get the disease that, you know, kills you. I think that's a great point and that we're seeing right now with COVID is that it's a novel disease. And when we have a novel disease, we don't understand it. And there's a lot of fear, paranoia, and isolation. So I I think the disease metaphor, I think, works pretty well. Like you said, it doesn't fully 
track if you were to go like a one-to-one sort of like interpretation with it but i think it works pretty well um at least in parts of it i think a probably something that tracks a little bit better would be the fly oh yeah but that's a different kind of yeah. movie that's a that's a little bit different though in terms of its take on body horror the fly to me is more of an internal sort of like my body is failing me because of this disease and my loved ones have to watch me die Whereas the thing is more of a, I, the thing to me feels more like a disease spread in and you quarantining and, and basically sacrificing yourself to stop. Yeah, it for the greater good. Right. So it's there. There's a delineation there. One thing I think is really great is that they went for a more chameleon transformation body horror take for this. Um, whereas like other takes prior to this was almost like it was almost like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is not a bad movie. Um but that's a very different sort of take than uh, what Carpenter does with the with the thing. I think Carpenter's take is better for the material. I've got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. worried about me if we've got any surprises for each other i don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it speaking of which i kind of wanted i wanted to read a couple so i wanted to read a couple quotes from critics at the time i wanted to talk about the legacy of the movie because uh it was not received very well when you it don't came say out. <laughs> um yeah and i you know there's different reasons as to why there's different theories um Universal didn't like the movie. They felt like it was a missed opportunity. Critics uh, didn't like it. Um, Let me read a couple quotes from you. Here is one from Vincent Canby of the New York Times. He says, The thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie aspiring to be the quintessential moron movie of the 1980s. Um, Boo! Yeah. David Denby writes, This movie is more disgusting than frightening, and most of it is just boring. Um... (laughs) I like this one. This is a really interesting one. Alan Spencer of Starlog Magazine, published in November of 1982. He says the thing has no pace, sloppy continuity, bland characters. It's my contention that John Carpenter was never meant to to direct science fiction. Jeez. (laughs) Here are some of the things that he would be better suited to direct. Traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public (laughs) vloggings. I think that is a hilarious review to end this on. <laughs> My- I will say this. Uh, um, I will say this. The movie, of course, has stood the test yes. of time. It was ahead of its time. So, so far and that ahead. was just the reality of it. There will be a um, COVID remake of I- The Thing, and it's going to be a guy coughing. Just watch. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, please plug everywhere that you write. Okay. Um, well, one, thank you for having me. Two, uh, one thing I wanted to plug. Oh, yeah. Uh, I meant to bring I, this up. I'm sorry. Yes. It's okay. Uh, so I um, am an editor-in-chief of HorrorWoodPresents.com. It's a new website. We launched it in June, and it's a collection of thoughtful horror essays. Uh, um, it could be about anything, really. Uh, video games, movies, film uh as a whole you know the genre as a whole television um novels whatever music 
So, you know, that's really the only requirement is that it's about horror. And we publish things weekly, so we have a new essay every week. And it's been really fun to work with different writers and help them, you know, realize uh, all these different essays. Uh, we've published some of the great stuff, so I'd love if you... Um, if your audience checks it yeah. out and I'll, also, I'll be throwing it in the episode uh, description because I, I, I think this is a really cool awesome. project that you're doing giving like upstarts a chance yeah and we don't there's no gatekeeping here so it's like I just you know we take submissions which you know if you want to submit go to the website and click on submissions you know I all I want to do is read a good pitch and if I can see that you can write I don't need you to have written for like a bunch of different publications uh, you know, I'll work with you and we'll make something interesting. Um, and that's it. You know, I, I, it's been a lot of fun so far and I, I hope we can take it even further. And, uh, then as far as if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is Mike X Nichols. Um, so feel free to do that too. Excellent. Mike, thank you again for coming on. Thank you for forcing me to watch the thing. Finally, this is incredible. <laughs> and, I can't think of a better way to lead us out than uh, some good old-fashioned uh, John Carpenter composition. <laughs>